So you're back for more, huh? Couldn't stay away from the eternal of hot takes. Man, that was real loose. And this is Murphus out of the MTG, Murphus in the Discord. I hope you guys are all good tonight. I'm here with the wonderful. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll, at Bosch and Roll, everywhere that you want to be on social media. You love to see it. And today we are back with another episode of Eternal of Hot Takes. Uh, And today we're going to start off with our legacy versus EDH section talking about threats. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before the cast. Threat assessment is something that is so hard to do because it is uh, it's not always true that threats look very threatish or threatening. so from your legacy experience and playing on kind of the competitive uh, circuit, like just let's start by what is a threat? How do you know that something is a threat? A threat is something that's going to win the game as simply as possible. If I'm playing against this thing, it's going to beat me. If I present this thing, it's going to win the game for me. If my opponent can't stop it, that's what a threat is. Totally. And, uh, you know, the, the the operative card that I think of when I think of a threat, I mean, for the last, I don't know, since like, what, 2011, I think of Delver Secrets, right? And, and Delver's been a little bit outclassed in Legacy for a while, but uh, let's talk about Delver for just a moment. What makes Delver a threat that's had, why is it such a Legacy playable staple and why does it have such a pedigree as an efficient threat? Important things that you want on your threats is usually uh, more stats than they cost mana. A one mana three two is already way above rate. And evasion is another important part of a creature threat. So three two flying for one mana is way above rate in every single direction. Uh, the The fact that Delver sometimes lives as a fugitive wizard, just one one for one for a while uh, is quote unquote balance. It's not quite just Wild Nakata <laughs> with flying, but uh, it, it's pretty easy in the high power formats to build a deck that's going to flip Delver with some reliability. Right. So th- that's another uh, interesting thing about this conversation, right? When we're talking about Delver in particular, and I think this applies to a lot of threats, is uh, threats need support, right? At least some amount of the time. When I think of Delver, the first card I think of is Brainstorm. Yep. Yeah, and so at, when when we're talking about threats, we're talking efficient, uh, more power than they than would be normally on rate for mana. We're talking about closing the game, and we're talking about um, evasion. Uh, my question for you is: What about uh, non-intuitive threats? And you know what I what I mean by this? I I am no legacy aficionado, right? Uh, and I think of, uh, you know, in some of these higher power eternal formats, I think of things like Oath of Druids, which I think that's just vintage. Yes. Yes. That's banned in legacy, but yeah, yeah, it it is still played in vintage. Right. So I think of non, that's not really, in my mind, that would be the threat, right? Like by the time they flip into a Grizzlebrand or a Sphinx of the Steel Wind, that's pretty well game, right? Like is... What's the threat in that situation? Is it something like an oath that's generating value or is it the creature that flips or both? Depends on what your deck can answer. If you can, in the case of something like Oath of Druids, if you can play a game plan without putting a creature into play, then that takes some of the sting out of Oath of Druids. If your deck has Swords to Plowshares in it and you can answer Sphinx of the Steel Wind cleanly on the back end, then you can just shove into Oath, let them Oath, whatever, I'll answer the creature. If their deck is going to flip into Grizzlebrand and you have Narset Parter of Veils and Swords to Plowshares in your deck, like some combination of cards that stop the immediate value of Grizzlebrand, then remove the 7-7 body, the control decks do have ways to beat the back end of an Oath. Decks like uh, any sort of creature-based, maybe budget strategy, some white weenie, uh, hate bear stack sort of thing is not going to beat Grizzlebrand. It's going to show up and the game will end. Totally. Uh, right. Uh, a deck like Mishra's Workshop in Vintage, uh, that is built to keep your opponent from casting spells. Oath 
praise on workshop because you only have to resolve one spell in a game oath and it's a two mana enchantment and then things will just start piling into play and undo everything the workshop deck's trying to do so it really depends on what your deck's capable of beating uh, do you have spell pierce to hit the oath or do you have swords of plowshares to hit the sphinx at the back end it, and that's part of threat assessment yeah I, I i love your point there and i think this is something that uh is overlooked especially if you're newer to the game right is uh not every threat matters because not every threat is a threat to you right, right. and when we're when it's a you know a heads up format like legacy like vintage like modern pioneer if does anybody play pioneer i don't know yeah for for those kind of formats right heads up if it's going to attack me it's probably a threat whether it's efficient or not is a different question but in EDH, I, th- I feel like there's this idea that anything that's bad is the boogeyman, but it's all about where it's pointed and what it's doing. I'm not super, well, I'm definitely not afraid of Grizzlebrand because hashtag blessed Grizzlebrand super, super banned and will ever forever be uh, in his band grave. Back in the hell uh, vault with you. Yes. Back in the hell vault with you. Ain't that the truth? And, uh, but what can your deck answer, right? Like if I'm, if I'm running a deck with a bunch of terrors, or a bunch of grave packs, I'm not worried about the creature deck, right? Like I, there's no reason for me to be super, um, yeah, super on edge about somebody putting a bunch of like undercosted threats onto the battlefield that are creatures. But if I'm like, if I'm a grave pack deck, like a mono black grave pack kind of deck, I am the softest to uh, any kind of enchantment based or artifact based threats. Uh, I know they've printed some things to help with that, but not not a lot, right? Um, so what can your deck answer is a big piece of this equation that I'm hearing from you, Bosch. Yeah, and there is really cool language that I believe Patrick Sullivan developed this, or at least uses it a lot, where threats are Muldrifters or Baneslayers, where what that means is a Baneslayer angel is a big badass creature it's got all sorts of words on it way above rate lifelink protection from demons and dragons flying first strike this thing is a house of a creature all for five mana but in a normal game of magic you can take three hits from that then draw your terror and you're still at five and you're stable uh the literally the damage has been done and it's all face up in a game of commander You can take significantly more hits. The table can take even three or four or more times that many hits from a Baneslayer. Then there's Muldrifter. This is a 2-2, but it drew two cards on the way through. Now there's unknown aspects of that threat. It doesn't hit as hard, but it packs up more protection or a second threat waiting in the wings. And in Commander... uh, these cards might look a little different, like Muldrifter and Baneslayer Angel don't really scale to a multiplayer 40 life format, but hopefully you can all visualize uh, in a 20 life two player game, a Muldrifter will win the game. And if you spend your terror on Muldrifter, you're down two cards. Your opponent casts a three for one and you spent a removal spell to remove the two two body because you are going to lose to it eventually. And then the next thing comes. Maybe it's another Muldrifter. And what Patrick Sullivan did was invented the term Bane Drifter, which kind of is in line with the fire design of the last few years, where Wizards of the Coast wants these explosive, dynamic, exciting onboard permanents. Something like Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, is a Bane Drifter. This is a 6-6. It's gaining life. It will win a game quickly. It also draws cards and makes land drops to advance the rest of your game behind it. Uh, Oko, Thief of Crowns. Bane Drifter to the max. This thing uh, generates card advantage immediately when it arrives and every turn it's in play. And if you draw the abrupt decay three turns later, too bad. There's three elks already and you got to deal with those now. Uh, So the and the commander game design philosophy, like building for commander. uh, This is something we talked about on the show, uh, or at least I did on one of the episodes I guessed it on, where Mm -hmm. when wizards went from printing Uh, just magic cards that exist when commander was born it was just sort of like you go into the bulk bin and it's like oh wow symbiote beast specifically says like uh whenever this 
that was a bad example. Like there are cards that say like each opponent randomly and cards that say target player when they weren't really thinking about multiplayer. Now every card just says all players or every card draws a card when it comes into play. Every card is planning to beat three players and it's a little easier to find Bane Drifters than it used to be. And if your opponent plays something like a Chroma Angel of Wrath, like my goodness, all the words on that card, I better kill it immediately. But I'm a life gain deck. This is not doing commander damage. It's just some creature. I'm at 58 life. This is a 6-6 and there's three people to attack. You don't actually care about this card, even if it is splashy and exciting. You want to save that for something bigger. Right. You want to save it for something bigger. And I love that point because I think the question, what do what do I care about is a question that we don't ask often enough in commander, like in this format, um, even when we're building decks and theory crafting around new commanders and stuff, what do I care about the number of cards that my, and the type of cards that like a, my Tyvosh, like mono black life gain, um, very bad deck. Like it's not good. It's, it's just actively bad. Uh, the cards that deck cares about are flying bodies. Like that's it. As as long as I can attack with my flying bodies, we are golden. But the types of cards that I care about when I'm playing four color control or something like that, like my curious control list, it's just vastly different. I'm, I'm worried about stack interaction. And I'm worried uh, a lot more about uh, mole drifters than I am Baneslayer angels, because if I win at one, I've still won the game and that deck is using its life total as a resource much more aggressively than maybe some other decks. So what do, what does my deck care about? Um, And I also, I I appreciate what you said, like fire design and Sullivan obviously talked about this a bit with Bane Drifter, like the fact that draw a card or like immediate value stapled onto these permanent base threats, whether they're disruptive advantage or like Oko um, eliminating threats or creating creating threats, I guess, too. Uh, or something like Earl, where it's like, draw a card, have a 6-6, six, six, right? Anytime I can refill my hand, ultimately in EDH, that's going to be great. But I, if I remember correctly, uh, that stuff's pretty busted in, in heads-up eternal formats like Legacy. It is, yeah. Uh, a lot of control mirrors in Legacy come down to decking. Uh, if I'm in the Bant color wedge, I will be playing to my one or two endurances in my deck to shuffle. Like I'll use Uro to exile all the bad cards when I escape Uro, knowing that Uro won't win the game. But eventually I'm going to endurance myself, shuffle back in all of the good cards that I left in my graveyard on purpose. I'm already planning for the second time through my deck in a legacy control mirror, which is like a very different thing than a game of commander. Yeah, totally. That And Trust me, I've played enough games of uh, Commander that have come down to decking that like, I know that that is a grind. Um, I can't imagine how quickly that happens in a 60-card format, because when you have 100 cards, that's the worst. Uh, but the uh, yeah, I like that idea of also, um, you know, part of threat assessment is also looking at and analyzing how am I winning the game, right? Like, what are my threats and what is my actual win condition? That's going to vary matchup to matchup. I'd imagine Uro can close the game most of the time when you're playing like Bant Snow or something, right? And yet there are those those mirrors where endurance uh, endurance on the stack is your is your threat. That's your win condition. Right. Um, and maybe you know I might be conflating things by using threat and win condition interchangeably, but I I don't know that I am. What are your what no, are your that's thoughts? The, that's the same thing. Uh, if your opponent is playing a Battle of Wits deck, Battle of Wits is the threat. Maybe they have other threats too. Uh, obviously, uh, Battle of Wits is not going to happen in Commander. That was uh, in a, a a specific, like the first alternate win con I could think of. Uh, if your totally. opponent is a ramp deck with Helix Pinnacle, let's go that way. If they can make infinite mana somehow and their plan is to win with Helix Pinnacle, Helix Pinnacle is the threat. Uh, like an opponent with infinite mana and nothing to do with it is not a threat. If your opponent is hellbent, just no cards in their hand, their commander not relevant, and they set up Devoted Druid and Vizier of Remedies for infinite green mana, you don't need to use your 
removal spell until they have a card in their hand. Give it a turn cycle. See what the board looks like before you spend that off. Yeah, and that's and that's really interesting, right? Because like devoted druid just got new life breathed into it yeah, with it uh, uh, swift uh, reconfiguration, swift reconfiguration, and you know the number of times I've been blisted out at a table is more than my fair, more than I think my fair share. Because I'm not, I am not the bad guy. Don't ballista me out of the game. However. Uh, in my my gut would say that actually devoted druid is the threat. Like you might lose to ballista might kill you, but you lost to the devoted druid. Is that right. instinct off? Uh, no, uh, it depends on threat assessment. Bringing us back to the the purpose here. If your opponent has six cards in their hand and vizier of remedies on the stack with a non summoning sick devoted druid, you better kill that druid before they can make infinite mana in response to your removal spell. You're not going to be able to swords to plowshares the walking ballista for infinity. It, it's going to kill you in response. Uh, that so, but if they are just drawing off the top, or they had the druid already, and they court of calling for vizier, and and they're about to pass the turn, like that sort of that situation, you can wait. Yeah, absolutely. So it it depends on also sequence of those threats too, right? Um, and I think the TLDR of this conversation, we're going to go to. A quick plug real quick for the Patreon, but just a a TLDR for this section is like, you don't, to use that example, Ballista kills you, but it's not the threat. And I think that that's a paradigm that may be um, a paradigmatic of uh, a change of uh, philosophy, maybe in thinking about threats around the table. It's, you don't lose to the thing that kills you, you kill you necessarily you lose to everything that's happened before the thing that kills you kills you so figuring out what those core components are uh might be the thing that helps up your win percentage ultimately i I don't want to sound like that spiky guy but i kind of am that spiky guy so here we are yeah absolutely and uh pro tip if a deck is named after a card that card's usually the threat like devoted druid combo ad nauseum tendrils (laughs) counter the druid counter the ad nauseum show and tell combo counter the show and tell (laughs) wink wink yeah it turns out that there's a lot of uh there's a lot of cheat sheets on on the deck list submissions you know what i mean absolutely cool well we're gonna go to a quick commercial for our awesome patreon and then we'll be back to talk counter meta do you like cmd tower content do you wish you could have more of it well, you should head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash cmdtower. That's where we really lean on the community for help and running our channel, but also giving back to you as well. So for just literally a buck a month, you can join and get tons of soft value, opportunities to be on the show, interact with the collective in our very lively chat. And then for even just five, 15 or 25 bucks, you're going to get swag. You're going to get RK post tokens. Really, it's one of the best values out there. Patreon.com slash CMD tower. Awesome. And and now we're going to jump into counter meta. This is a uh, section of the show where we talk about popular archetypes in the commander format. What makes them tick? And using Bosch's uh, knowledge of competitive play what we can do to up our win percentage and find interesting ways around these archetypes. And today we're talking about something that's actually on the top of mind for a lot of people with the release of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty recently. We're going to talk about Enchantress, specifically uh, White Green X Enchantress. And I I use that because, uh, you know, White Green Black and White Green Blue are going to be the two primary uh, enchantress archetypes there. Uh, but like we were talking about earlier, sometimes the, th- the thing that kills you isn't the threat. And I, I think that probably holds true for this archetype in Commander. Oh, this is the poster child. Uh, I am sure that whichever uh, smart person who decided the show was going to be about these two topics, one after the other, had this in mind. But Enchantress specifically, remember that cheat code I just gave you for learning how to beat decks that are named after cards? 
<laughs> the deck is called Enchantress. It's not called Sigil of the Empty Throne. Don't let the Enchantress resolve or let the Enchantress effects stay in play, whether it's the the Sithis, the Argothian Enchantress, the uh there I know there's multiple like Bant and uh I'm forgetting the name of the wedge, uh the blue, white, black one, uh Esper. Oh, Esper. Uh, right. Esper. Uh, I know there are different takes on it. There's so many enchantresses right now in magic that uh, that's where you want to have the fight. When your opponent is just innocently casting Utopia Sprawl or Wild Growth, that's ignorable. When Utopia Sprawl and Wild Growth can trip, or even worse, draw two cards if you let them snowball, you're not winning that game. Uh, that's where that game is starting to be lost. Uh, you don't get to sit on your counterspell until Sigil of the Empty Throne shows up. That's not actually the win con. Uh, that might be a way that they actually convert into damage, but they're winning the game every single turn. They have Enchantress effects in play. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right here. And I, I think of Sithis Harvest Hand, a uh, uh, friend down here as part of our play group, Dustin has a... Uh, pretty intense Sithis deck like it's it's fun to play against and stuff but the uh when i've played against it in a pod what i found is that um people are hesitant to eliminate the Sithis because it feel it can feel a little bit like picking on somebody to target their commander right like we we get that that's you know social format whatever you lose to the Sithis drawing cards. You do not lose to the Sigil of the Empty Throne or Howled Haunting or, you know, whatever else, right? You don't lose to a souped-up Tuvasa. You lose to somebody casting Ancestral Recall multiple times a turn um, because ultimately card advantage is what allows them the number of options they need in order to close the game from any specific position, right? Right. Uh, it like if you dedicate your removal to the Sithis, it it's their commander. Uh, the great thing about commander is two turns from now they develop their man a little bit. They get their commander back. Like it's it's part of the game, and I think that players who lean into aggressive like uh, tempo commanders that cost one one two or three mana, they. I, I don't think it is reasonable to be super upset if your two mana draw engine that starts every game in your hand gets picked off in the early turns. It, it's uh, that that is part of threat assessment. And I also have a local who plays Sithis and it's terrifying uh, in, in legacy. Enchantress is also a deck in modern Enchantress is also a deck and I will use any resource at my disposal to make sure enchantresses don't get into play. Uh, that that is where the game is won and lost. The if you save your counterspell for the sigil of the empty throne, then they cast replenish and they have it anyway, or they just play opalescence instead, and or whatever it is, or they stack up a turn where they go uh, city of solitude, then opalescence, and you can't respond anyway. It's it giving them the option is where that game is lost. Yeah, totally. And I think I think something that's really interesting, and I'll say this, something I appreciate about playing with him is that like he absolutely knows that Sithis is a threat, right? So like when Sithis is on the board and I swords it immediately or like bolt it immediately, we're Gucci. Uh, and I, I think that's a piece of the puzzle for a different episode maybe uh, about interplay dynamics and stuff. However, uh, what I will say is uh aura of silence doesn't isn't the card you want to beat an enchantress deck i don't think this may be a hot take but i think you want lightning bolt over aura of silence most of the time amen to that yeah i'll i'll co-sign that for sure uh and yeah. there there becomes like this interesting uh like play decision as well if, if the civis player doesn't want their civis to die before they can use it wait till turn three just play your third land, cast Sithis, immediately cast Utopia Sprawl, draw a card. Then if they lightning bolt it, you're already up a card. And next turn, you can just redeploy Sithis. Uh, you're just play off curve a little bit to guarantee the card advantage. It's really easy to cash in on a two mana commander that can impact the board immediately if you 
modify your play pattern. You don't have to cast every spell you can cast. Yeah, and I think I think uh, mana economy is something. And again, this may be a top. I'm going to stick that one away, but I will say this: mana economy in commander is very different than mana economy heads up, right? Like the tempo loss from wasting mana is really hard to come back from in a lot of formats, especially I think of things like uh, standard and even historic on arena and stuff. Like if you get blown out with a haymaker, playing your haymaker with a two mana removal spell, it's, it's pretty hard to come back. And a lot of times the game's over. Yes. In Uh, head to head mat magic, uh, whether maybe even one V one commander, but certainly in, 20 life formats the player who spends the most mana wins the game almost all of the time if you really look at what happened in a game of magic the player who spent the most mana won that game break it down piece by piece and you'll find out it's true whether they're cheating with like dark ritual that's still mana spent whether they're cheating on like force of will and days you can assign reasonable mana values to a card like force of will like pitch casting force of will we were not going to call that five because that's Force of Will's printed mana cost, but we can call it two for a counter spell. We can call days one for Force Spike. And even if they're not spending mana, virtual mana spent or as well as actual mana spent, uh, that player is going to win the game most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's so different from Commander because it's not your mana economy that wins you the game. It's your card economy that wins you the game. Mm-hmm. So usually using your cards in a way that efficiently answers the only the things that matter and knowing what matters at a given table in a given situation is more fundamentally important than spending all of your mana every turn. You want to spend all of your mana every turn correctly. And that's just a very different vibe than, uh, than heads up formats. Yep. Um, so there is a card that came to mind for me uh, as we were talking about uh, this topic. Well, two cards. Uh, two families of cards. I'll call them families. Uh, they're they're like the new Capenna Mafia families, except they're much slower and clunkier. Uh, one is the ghostly prison family of enchantment spells, the pillow forts. And the next one is actually, uh, again, new breath into it because breathed into it because of Neon Dynasty, but the shrines. I, I feel like these two families of enchantments actually provide very different um provide a very different uh, threat assessment equation uh, when you're at a pot of four. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Uh, Pillow forts are as old as Commander is. Uh, uh, People have always had ghostly prison decks, uh, sphere of safety, uh, elephant grass, whatever it is. And those decks always eventually die to the enchantment sweeper, uh, the austere command, the bane of progress, the Cyclonic Rift, whatever it is, uh, at some point, if you're just in your pillow fort, you're giving three players all the time in the world to draw their answers and knock down your pillow fort. And by that point, people are probably pretty annoyed with you. And that turn cycle where the shields are down, you're going to get pummeled. The more proactive ones, like the uh, Enchantress field working towards Sigil, working towards Opalescence, working towards Shrines, like uh, gaining advantage, putting creatures on the board. I am a lot more afraid of that one because then uh, Cyclonic Rift always gets everything. That card's real stupid. But like the Bane of Progress, if you sweep up the shrines, there might be 35 1-1 colorless spirit tokens in play left to pick away at you. It could be like whoever beats up my shrines is getting the Wrath of the Spirit Army next turn. Could be some table politics there. So I am much more worried about an Enchantress deck with dimensions to it than I am about a Pillow Fort. Yeah, I agree. And I I think that that's what's so fascinating about the Shrines deck because the Shrine enchantment deck is trying to do a lot of the same things that Enchantress decks do. Maybe it's pillow fording up. But the tempo you gain from uh, generating spirits and insects or even producing extra mana through Sanctum of the Harvest or whatever, um, being able to produce bodies and mana to... Uh, leverage board presence in a way that isn't soft to your other, to what your other permanents are soft to, right? Like you may still be soft to an austere command specifically or a farewell specifically, but somebody hits you with a tranquility, you're golden because you just tag them 
and they become your just one and the game is over for them in short order. Uh, for me, when I'm playing heads, uh, when I'm playing up, uh, not heads up, when I'm playing against shrines in a pod, my gut says the shrines matter as much as the enchantresses. What are your thoughts? I would prioritize what the shrine does. Uh, shrine of uh, Cleansing Fire, I believe, is the original white shrine. Uh, you gain two life in your upkeep free shrine you control. Sure, you can have two to eight life every turn. We'll figure that out eventually. Commander damage is a thing. Uh, Honden of Seeing Winds, the draw a card for each shrine you control. Heck to the no. Like, yeah, whatever, kill it on sight. Whatever I got for that is happening. Uh, Honden of Night's Reach, that's the discard one. I'm not getting blasted for four cards in your next upkeep. I'm fighting over that. Uh, and then some of the, the newer ones, they require a, an activation cost where it's like in your upkeep, you may pay one to do this per shrine. Do they have the one they can spare? Like that starts to become a threat assessment. If they do activate their three shrines in the upkeep, are they going to cast a spell this turn? Can I beat the board? Can I like trick them into committing their mana to a shrine so they don't get a spell and then get them after that? Like, does my sweeper pick up all of the value they would get from activating the shrine? Do I have austere command or do I have tranquility? All of those are questions I'm asking myself when I see various shrines on the stack. Yeah, totally. Like I am, I am way more afraid of a, uh, Goshentai of shared purpose. That's the white uh, one, three with vigilance that creates a one, one spirit for each shrine. Then I am the Goshentai of lost wisdom, which mills mills someone, right? Like, right. The chances of me losing to decking against the shrine stack is almost zero. The chances of me getting crushed uh, in combat because of leveraged board advantage is almost, almost an inevitability at, at a late stage of the game. Right. And it might be the opposite for someone else, like mono black control. Like if someone just has uh, every sweeper in black in their deck, maybe they don't care about one, one tokens, but they don't really have a plan for just getting milled to the dome for eight to 10 cards a turn. They're going to run out of deck if they don't play like an Aldrazi or something to loop it back in like, again, incentive based on the context. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I think uh, you know, what What we're hoping this conversation, uh, what's clear in this conversation is that threat assessment isn't necessarily easy. It's hyper-contextualized to a table, to a situation, and to what you're soft to. And for Enchantress decks in particular, um, the, the white-green X varietals and maybe the white-blue X varietals... Uh, you want to prioritize killing their draw engines because you're going to lose to the cards before you lose to the to the to the uh, end game cards. Like they have to draw into those sometime, and the quicker they draw into those cards, the quicker you lose the game. So you you want to prioritize the enchantresses, and then second, you want to prioritize the enchantments that matter, not the enchantments that don't. Which sounds so silly to say out loud, but just because it's common knowledge doesn't make it common practice. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And many of Enchantress's payoffs, whether it's Shrine or a more traditional Pillow Fort style, require more things to make them happen. Like the the Shrines, they get better in multiples. If your opponent's not drawing cards off of whether it's a draw cards Shrine or an Enchantress effect, then they won't have more Shrines to deploy. If they cap off that sigil of the empty throne or the opalescence or the retether or whatever it is, uh, or, uh, uh, replenish that, like all of those are contingent on you having either a handful of additional enchantments, a stocked graveyard with enchantments or a board full of enchantments. And if you stop the card draw, they will have a much more reasonable number of payoffs along the way or when they get there. Totally. And some advantage is way easier to overcome than insurmountable card advantage. Um, I hope that was a helpful conversation. We're actually going to jump to a quick promo for our awesome store, and then we'll be back with Bosch and Roll for Council of the Unban. Hey there, Collective. Do you need a new playmat? Do you need some sleeves? Have you 
been forgetting your upkeep triggers, well, be sure to head over to cmdtower.com slash merch and be able to pick up all the great swag made for you guys. It could be the Mr. Comma Number 5 Reminder Token. It could be the Squee McGee Get Up and Fight coin or, heck, even our foil playmat or Jund holiday sweaters. All of it's there. Go check it out. So, spoiler alert, I am not the voice of the Council of the Unbanned. I don't know if you can tell from the raspiness or the fact that my voice is not not cracking right now, but I'm not planning to uh, give us a crazy intro to this, but I am planning to talk about uh, a card that I think categorically should be unbanned in no uncertain terms because it's great and it sucks that it's banned. Today, we are talking about Gifts Ungiven. And here's my case. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my case, Bosh. Are you ready for my case? I'm ready. Lay it on me. Okay. Uh, point one for Gifts Ungiven. It's a four mana instant. Like when I think about tutoring for multiple targets, I, you know, especially values gifts piles where it's not just a straight up two card combo into the yard. I, four mana is a lot to spend. The tempo uh, that, you know, you may be uh, spending the mana then on turn four can be deadly. So I don't think that the opportunity cost is zero to cast that card on curve. Second, intuition is legal. If intuition is legal, my contention is gifts ungiven should be legal. They're doing very similar things and serving similar, um, similar end game potentials when they're searching for combos. And uh, they both present the same issue of searching and shuffling. So in my mind, there's not a lot of, uh, of reason to have gifts banned and intuition unbanned. Uh, third, uh, it kind of goes along with the second is the price. Gifts ungiven is like 15 cents and intuition is like $160. So uh, there's that. And finally... One of the primary gifts combo targets has been banned. Iona, Shield of Amiria, is no longer, uh, I believe that's the seven mana one. Uh, yeah, egg on my one. face. Yeah, that's the one. It's banned. Like it's, that, is, that was the boogeyman with gifts ungiven. That was the one that we saw in extended and modern um, where you search up an unburial rights in an Iona and lock somebody out of the game. First of all, it's really hard to do that in a four-player pod anyway without something like Painter Servant, but it's also gone. So with all of those things on the table, Gifts Ungiven should be unbanned. Uh, we'll go to your thoughts. Isn't Painter Servant also banned in Commander? It is unbanned. Oh, when they, they, they banned Iona, one. they unbanned Painter. Okay, dope. All right. Okay. Uh, I'm caught up on the format now. So yes, uh, I am honestly not going to put up a big fight on gifts ungiven. I have been the voice of reason. My previous appearances on council of the unbanned. Uh, I said no way to Grizzlebrand. I said no way to recurring nightmare, but maybe on gifts ungiven, I will say you brought up the comparison to intuition. There's one thing that gifts ungiven does that intuition does not. And it breaks my heart, endless frustration, my favorite CEDH deck, and we are talking max power level here, is Ishai Jeska, which is sort of a Delver tempo deck with Ishai, and it has breach combo lines, underworld breach combo lines in it. And Gifts Ungiven is the only card in Magic that can assemble underworld breach, brain freeze, lion's eye diamond, and Savine's reclamation with one card. Intuition, you need one of the pieces already, and then you can get the other three. But Gifts is that one card piece that just pops it off. And you also mentioned the just choosing to get two cards. And for the view or the listeners who might not know how that works, uh, Gifts on Given lets you search your deck for four cards with different names. Anytime you're searching your deck for a card with specific characteristics, you can fail to find. If a card, if, if like Demonic Tutor says just get a card, your opponent can see that there are cards in your deck. Your opponent can't verify that there are four different cards with different names in your deck. Therefore, you can fail to find. And Gifts says, put all of the cards 
not chosen by your opponent into your hand. The way it's worded, if you fail to find on two cards and only get two, you get a double in tomb for four mana. And that's where we get this uh, two pieces into the graveyard thing. Uh, even if Iona's banned, there's still a lot of big crunchy creatures that can go into the graveyard. Uh, I might even argue that Iona's not even the scariest thing in the format that you could get. Like you could get like a Karmic Guide and then uh, Unburial writes Karmic Guide, getting back Kiki Jiki, and then copy the Karmic Guide and, and just like go nutty in one way or another. There's a lot of things you could do, but I guess you're right that Intuition does a lot of those things anyway. Um, intuition does avoid the double entomb problem. Your opponent can just give you the the monster and bin your two reanimation spells. So there's less agency in an intuition than there is in a gifts ungiven if you're just going for the entomb pile. Uh, some arguments against gifts, though, the fact it's an instant is pretty messed up. And like you presented four mana instant as that's an expensive card. I think in a game of commander, especially the the closer you get to casual, the cheaper four mana actually is. Like if I look at a what I think is a comparable card, assuming infinite mana is like increasing ambition, where it's five mana to demonic tutor, then eight mana to demonic tutor twice on the flashback. Like you get three cards in your hand for one card invested up front, but that's thirteen mana uh, versus four, and that's a sorcery. And they can see the second half coming. Uh, I, I think that a four mana instant, especially like the end step, cast this, and then it's the classic factor fiction problem. Like, do I counter the end step factor fiction or do I fight over what they, the cards they get off? Oh, totally, totally. And this, this was the loosest of my arguments because I love me some four mana instants. I love end step factor fiction. You lose like that is my heartbeat in every format that it's possible. And, uh, Yeah, so if I could strike one argument from the record, it would be four mana instant because four mana instant is nothing because end steps are everything. Yeah, that's a that's a freebie. That is a huge plus and not a huge minus. And another uh, a very real concern for gifts ungiven to me is time constraints. Uh, I tend to build my decks when I'm not uh, at the CEDH level. If I'm in any lower power level than CEDH, I tend to build with minimal tutors. Like my tutors are like Green Sun Zenith. I don't play Demonic Tutor. Uh, I, I just choose not to put those cards in my deck. I think it's boring picking up your deck and always having the same options available and making the table sit there while you find your card and making the table sit there while you find four cards with different names while trying to navigate the level system of which cards is this person going to give me and uh, how do I mitigate this? Like, do I make a graveyard value pile? Do I go for the combo? Um, do you have an alliance with the player you targeted? Uh, if you just say like, hey, just give me the best two cards. And they're like, yeah, sure. Uh, it, is that a bad play experience for the other two players? Are you going to get hoodwinked? And they just give you the wrong two cards. Uh, there's like, I I don't want to sit at a table, a low power table or medium below CEDH power level table and watch someone navigate a tutor that complicated. Like I, my eyes are going to glaze into the back of my head. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the, um, which I'm a play patterns guy. I love talking about play patterns. I hadn't really thought about the time commitment for an effective gifts pile at like, I mean, every commander decks a seven power level, right? But like medium right. to low power level uh, pods. Yeah, that, that find for value pile is going to be like, you know, flash forward to 20 minutes later when they're finally shuffling. And then they say, actually, I want something different. Like that would be just, I've, I've scooped games for less than that. And all of that is just gets to the point where then the targeted player starts agonizing over which two cards to give them. And then the other two players chime in to argue over which two cards to give them. And I, I think that resolving gifts ungiven on average is a 10 minute proposition at a four player uh, medium uh, to low power table. If the game isn't over face up when the gifts resolves, regardless of what you take, then there's going to be 
additional an additional round of litigation over what we're going to do with this gifts pile. Yeah, absolutely. The the politics of that um, at a lot of tables. Uh, honestly, pet peeve of mine is is deliberating with the table every over every decision like that. So like deliberations over factor fiction splits. They're part of why I don't have any hair on my head. I pulled out all my hair with people resolving factor fictions and then saying, which card should I give them? Because that's the worst. Just just make the decisions. People right. make the decisions. And I am a every single shortcuts player. Like my rule zero is if you have wooded foothills, tell me you're getting by you and pass the turn. Search during the other player's turns or whatever. Uh, if I'm about to take a mulligan and the rest of the table's ready, I, I say, put me in the time vault. And then they to play a turn cycle. And then when I've kept a hand, when it comes back to me, I just take two turns and then we're back into turn rotation. Like, don't wait for anything. Maximum shortcuts. Let's get this moving. Uh, that is how I like to, like, I want to play as many games in the night as possible. Um, that also depends on your vibe and your pod. Like, if if your EDH pod is an excuse to hang out, eat chips and watch Netflix, and like there just happens to be a game on the table that nobody cares if you finish or not, uh, sure, do you. But like if I show up to Commander Knight at the LGS and there's a three hour window to play as many games as possible before we get kicked out because the store is closing, I don't want to wait for you to search for your Bayou on turn one uh, when you're not going to cast a spell anyway. And guess I'm given is you cannot shortcut it. Uh, the The giant matrix brain a human would need to put gifts on the stack and just say like i'm getting xyzq and i'm targeting you which two are you giving me like before they even pick up their deck to start searching like that's i i don't think that's going to happen when i when i grow up i'd like to have that kind of galaxy brain when i when i <laughs> become a grown up so uh yeah no i i totally see where you're coming from and i do think um you know, talking about scary threats that you can bin in the graveyard, I think you're right. Like Iona is probably the least, the least concern. I, I, back in the day I was playing, and I say back in the day, it's 2016, which I guess is six years ago. Wow. Time flies. Uh, our, some people at our LGS were making a run for the pro tour, just trying to test together and do the thing. And we were grinding our PTQs and I went 12 and one at my first RPTQ uh with a, an Esper Gorio's Vengeance deck that ran uh gifts lines. So mm -hmm. it had like three or four gifts piles, but your primary pile was always Unburial Rights Elishnorn. Right. Because Elishnorn closes games immediately where Iona might leave someone with like a lingering point of hope, like that one percenter out. Uh but the number of times I lost with an Elish Norn in play after gifts is next to none. Yeah. Uh, and it's a toolbox. Like Entomb was banned in Legacy for a long time. And gifts is two Entombs. And like if you're playing against a creature table, get Elish Norn. If you're playing against a combo table, get Archon of Valor's Reach or uh, get Sarah's Emissary. If your opponents are just on mono creatures, uh, get Archon of Cruelty, uh, if you just want to like pull ahead on some cards, there's and I'm sure there are some like even crazier cards in the commander specific sphere that I'm not even thinking of uh, something that like uh, lets you play three lands a turn and like makes a token per land you play. And it just like it, it can snowball very quickly starting turn four. And that's that's really scary. Yeah, and you you amplify that with a format that's littered with fast mana, and now yep. some of like talk about you know we were talking about bane drifters before. Have you resolved a holebreaker horror? Because that that shit is bananas. B a n a n a s bananas. It definitely is. I actually had my first holebreaker horror in play recently in one of my legacy videos, and I was like, oh, oh, I get it. Uh, yeah, that card is nice. Yeah, it feels like an entirely different game. Like you just like as soon as it hits the stack, you're like, oh, I'm playing a different game than my opponent is now. Like, yes. So little of the interaction matters at that point. Um, but yeah, so so 
for the sake of time. It's just you and me, Bosh. There's no Mr. Combo to throw a wrench in my plans. How much do I have to pay you off for us to unban Gifts Ungiven? I will say, despite all of my concerns about uh, time constraints, etc., because let's be honest, we've all been at that table where someone is going to make the game drag on forever, no matter what they're doing. We might as well unban Gifts Ungiven and lean into this Mamma Jamma. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I, I, you know, like the bit wanting to unban the ban list, all of those kind of things, all that aside, Gifts Ungiven is one of the only cards I've ever considered rule zeroing in my life. Like, just let me have the value gifts. There's no combos for me to get here. Let's rock and roll. Like, I I love me some Gifts Ungiven. And y'all, if you haven't seen Ristic Studies uh, video essay on Gifts Ungiven on YouTube, check it out. It is incredible. Brings you back to one of my favorite eras in Magic. Uh, with Frank Karsten playing Gifts and Given at the Pro Tour, and it is unreal. It is so good. Um, now, we also want to talk to you about, real quick, uh, before we end the episode, we want to talk to you about BissProxyShop.com. Uh, you can use the promo code CMDTOWER for 10% off your order. And the discount is stackable with all their other promos. So you can get your hands on a lot of really sweet playtest cards if that's how you like to play the game. So check it out, abyssproxyshop.com, promo code CMD Tower for 10% off your order. Well, we, we want to thank you for getting sweaty with us. Remember, if you are looking for more fire content to check out the rest of what CMD Hour has to offer, my name is Murphus Alvi MTG. You can find my stuff over on Commander's Herald, where I write a couple articles a month for them. Uh, and you can always find our collection of podcasts and our swag at cmdtower.com. And if you're looking for more content from me, if you want to lean into that spiky side, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Bosch and Roll on Twitter, Bosch and Roll on Linktree, you can find all of my stuff there. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Remember, Cold takes are temporary. Hot takes are eternal. Mm-hmm.